Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. Well, hello, everybody. I am super excited for today's podcast. You may or may not know that September is PCOS Awareness Month. I have with me today an amazing endocrinologist, Dr. Elise Goldberg. And Dr. Goldberg has a special interest in reproductive and gestational endocrinology. She's a published researcher in this field, and she's also an expert in polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, in patients with infertility. So today we're going to be talking all about PCOS, and I know many of my listeners are women who may have been diagnosed with PCOS, or they're wondering if they may have this diagnosis, but they're not clear. So today is going to be really, really good. Now, before we start, just a brief reminder that we are going to be discussing general medical information, and this is not to be taken as medical advice. So if you have more questions, you should speak to your own healthcare provider. All right. So this is going to be great. Welcome, Dr. Goldberg. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think if we could just start with what is PCOS. I think there are some women who may have heard of it, a lot of people who are, who are confused about this. So what is it? So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, which would refer to as a metabolic reproductive condition. I would want to start with the fact that it is probably one of the worst named conditions in all of endocrinology because you don't need to have polycystic ovaries or that description of multiple follicles on your ovary to actually have the condition. So the diagnosis of PCOS is actually based on something called the Rotterdam criteria. So or actually, let me take a step back. Anytime any condition is called a syndrome, it means it's a constellation of symptoms that clinicians put together. So in this case, a number of researchers in 2013 in Europe came together and wanted to describe the women that were coming forward with similar symptoms. So to have this condition, um, one would require to have two out of three things. The first would be irregular menstrual cycles. So less than eight cycles or less than eight periods in a year or periods that occur either less than 23 days or more than 32 days apart. So that would be a one criteria. The second criteria would be either symptoms, so clinical signs of hyperandrogenism, so male hormone excess symptoms, which would be like acne or male pattern hair growth or male pattern hair loss. Or you don't even need the symptoms, but if you have biochemistry, so blood tests that are consistent with excess male hormones out of the normal range for women, that would still get you a point on this scale. So those are the two probably more important criteria. The third criteria is how your ovaries actually look on ultrasound. So there is this specific morphology. Some would refer to you as ring of pearls. It almost is a description of ovaries with lots of little bubbles or follicles around the edge of the ovaries that almost signify an ovary holding on to eggs that they're not ovulating. The trouble is, and why the more updated guidelines for PCOS don't actually think that this is the most important of the diagnostic criteria, is that up to 25% of women will have ovaries that look like this, even without any other associated aspects of the condition. And 
many people on the birth control pill will have ovaries that look like this. So less specific, meaning that lots of other things can look like it. Anyway, so if you have two out of these three criteria and you have ruled out other things that can cause the irregular period or any of these symptoms, then someone would be able to be diagnosed with the condition. Okay, super interesting. So I didn't realize it's about a quarter of women are not going to have the ultrasound features of polycystic ovaries. No, opposite. So a quarter of women will have the ultrasound features, but may not have PCOS. Oh, okay. So it's nonspecific. Yeah. So a common consult that I might get would be polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound. Is this PCOS? And the answer sometimes is no. Interesting. So what what would be the main symptoms or signs of the women who do present to you? So you mentioned women showing up with ultrasound characteristics. What else? What other symptoms? So irregular periods is probably the most common or absence of menstrual periods. And then the other one would be excess hair growth or hair loss. Okay. And why is it? So we started by saying like, this is a syndrome because we're, it's a constellation of findings. And what is the association? So is there an understood common pathophysiology or common cause that links these things? Yeah. So great question. And that also probably goes into why it's so confusing. So what is accepted amongst basically most experts and most clinicians would be that the underlying issue is a a hormonal problem. So there's a, a problem with the communication between the pituitary gland, which sends signals to the ovaries and the ovaries listening. So that the, the communication is off. That communication will lead to excess male hormones that shouldn't be necessarily as high and so, or symptoms of that, or lack of proper signaling to the ovaries to grow an egg and then ovulate the egg. So that, which would lead to irregular periods. The exact reason as to why this happens is actually almost hotly debated. There's two main components, which probably both or neither, or sometimes partly occur at the same time. And the first would be insulin resistance, something that you're very familiar with. So it's that genetic predisposition to not listen to the body's insulin signals as well. And that high insulin levels can affect that pituitary and ovary communication. And it can also decrease something called sex hormone binding globulin. I'm sorry if this is becoming too intricate, but that would lead to... That would lead to excess male hormone levels that is free and ready to go bind to hair follicle receptors and, and skin cells and lead to some of those symptoms. So insulin resistance is a huge component. Not everyone with PCOS has insulin resistance. Many do, probably like 70 to 80% do, but not everyone. And so what is the other thing that's contributing? And that's probably the hyperandrogenism itself. So we know based on studies that just exposing um, ovaries to excess androgens can actually lead to the phenotype of PCOS as well. So it becomes like a chicken and an egg situation. And we probably don't know which one. And probably in certain patients, it's the insulin resistance that's primarily causing the trouble. And in some patients, it's primarily the hyperandrogenism. And most patients, it's probably both. And this then leads to these irregular periods, the male hormone excess symptoms. Okay, well, it's 
very clear to me why there's so much confusion around this diagnosis because it's, I mean, it sounds like it's really complex physiology. Is the insulin resistance the reason many women with PCOS have a tendency towards weight gain? Because that's certainly the population that I see in my clinic. That's the thought. There's also, it's, it's unclear whether or not the insulin resistance is resulting or leads to weight gain. And again, probably it's very individual based on genetic predisposition. There are definitely some patients that give this fantastic history of, I had no symptoms of, or any concerns, and then I gained weight. And then there's other patients that describe this ongoing weight gain at the same time as the onset of their symptoms. And it's not always, we're not always able to distinguish exactly what came first. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about kind of some of the features of it and how it's diagnosed. Now, can you tell me about the treatment? What, what treatments are available for women with PCOS? So I would say that no matter what the underlying causes, the treatments will start similarly with lifestyle optimization. Even if there's more of an androgen component, there still is evidence that most patients with PCOS will respond to healthy lifestyle. And I mean, these are the same healthy lifestyle we we tell most people, reducing processed carbohydrates, um, (laughs) reducing added sugars, trying to increase fiber intake, like all the the good, liquid sugars, definitely reduction, things that would spike insulin in anyone. But the healthy lifestyle would be helpful for everyone has been shown, even if patients don't have insulin resistance documented by by lab work, for example. So that would be like trying to treat the underlying cause. And then there's medical therapies that we can add adjuvant therapy depending on the patient's goals. And what I mean by depending on the patient's goals, it really depends on the patient's reproductive goals. So if a patient is trying to get pregnant, then our goal would be to try to optimize their ovulation. And this again is with lifestyle, but then things like metformin, which is diabetes medication, which targets that insulin resistance component can actually help patients ovulate even in the absence of documented insulin resistance. Interesting. Is it known how that works? Like how is it that metformin treating insulin resistance actually helps with ovulation. So the thought is that there's insulin resistance at the level of the ovaries, even before it's seen in the blood work. So even before it it, it impacts your liver, essentially. And so one way, especially in patients that you're not always sure whether or not it's PCOS or not, a trial of metformin, which leads to positive benefits, would be something that would suggest that this is, that there is a PCOS component. That's really interesting. I, you know, I'm really interested in insulin resistance because we see that in my patient population a lot as well. So, so you, you mentioned that the treatment goals depend on whether they are wanting to conceive or not. Are there any other kind of, tell us about the long-term complications that you might be concerned about that you'd want to address in women with PCOS? So in terms of long-term complications, I guess I would think of it within the metabolic setting. So this is almost an opportunity to target young women who wouldn't necessarily otherwise be in medical care. So if we think of like their period almost as a, a vital sign and some, it's showing us that something is wrong, 
in patients who have PCOS, it's showing that they're genetically predisposed to perhaps more metabolic syndrome or risk of gestational diabetes or diabetes later on. So trying to optimize their, their lifestyle would be of use and try to prevent long-term complications from, from that perspective. The other important aspect is about the menstrual cycle. So in patients who don't ovulate regularly, there is a risk of building up of the lining if the lining isn't shed every like three to four months. And there can be atypical changes in the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium. And so that can pose some risk for irregular cells if not addressed. So in order to optimize medical endometrial health, using either a medication called progesterone to get the lining just to shed or using the birth control pill would be able to kind of keep your uterus healthy. And then there's also the mental health effects and some of the side effects of having the male hormone symptoms. And then, so being able to help patients who have the symptoms of hair growth and hair loss and acne, which is not particularly positive, um, is important as well. And again, that it's mostly limited to patients who are not trying to get pregnant or at least who are properly contracepting because many of the treatments for the male hormone excess are not suitable for pregnancy. Well, either it's the birth control pill because that lowers the male hormones or it increases sex hormone binding globulin, so it uh, lowers the active male hormones, or it's a medication called spironolactone, which acts by suppressing the male hormones directly, but we don't want to decrease male hormones in a person who is pregnant with potentially a boy. So we have to be very cautious with what medications and we offer to whom at what stage of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love how you've opened up your conversation about treatment by framing it as we have an opportunity to intervene in young women who otherwise wouldn't seek medical care because I'm a huge advocate for preventative health measures and optimizing health and, and really focusing on those positive behaviors from a young age. And so I think that's such a nice way of putting it that this diagnosis although it does come with potentially future complications and some, you know, negative negative aspects for women who are diagnosed, it can also be framed as, hey, this is an opportunity for us to intervene and um, instill some really great positive health behaviors and improve future outcomes. I think another aspect that we have to be really mindful of is that because it's such a common condition and with the internet, how it is now, there's so many people who are targeting patients with information about PCOS. There's a lot of not necessarily most accurate advice. And so being very mindful about where people are getting their information from, because it can set them up for either wrong interventions or disappointment in the future. And also being very mindful that it is a diagnosis of exclusion and there's many conditions that can look like PCOS, but are not. So it's very important to be thoroughly evaluated and have all the other conditions, albeit many of them rare, be ruled out before you're convinced that this is your diagnosis. Yeah, well, I think that that's why I'm so happy that you were able to come and speak with us because I wanted an expert to be able to fill us in and give us information on PCOS that's accurate and that's reliable. So what would you say if there are women who are like, oh, that sounds like I have some of those features and I'm concerned, what, what should they do? What's their next step? I would say go speak to their primary care physician. I think PCOS is often in the forefront of many physicians' minds. 
I know in uh, Toronto, with the multicultural population we have, it is actually quite common, probably because of the way our food interacts with different people who have moved to Canada. And there's so metabolic syndrome is just manifesting in these symptoms in, in young women. And so if it's a concern that it would be very important to be evaluated and also make sure that nothing else is, is being missed because there's other treatable conditions as well. Yeah, you said it's quite common. Do you have a sense of like what percentage of women do have PCOS? I don't have that specific statistic, but I think in women who have irregular periods, it is probably the most or one of the two most common, actually, hypothalamic amenorrhea is probably also extremely common and can be confused as well in certain circumstances. But I would say that those two are probably the most common reasons of irregular periods. Okay. Is there anything else that you think would be important for our listeners to know about PCOS you want to comment on? I think one of the main concerns that I hear from patients is that they think this is like a a life sentence for negative outcomes, but there's many medical tools that we have as well as lifestyle tools and supports that exist in order to tolerate and get people's symptoms as improved as possible. And so keep looking and hopefully that we can figure out ways to to help as many people as possible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think that that's, it was such a great point to bring up right at the end to say, Hey, there is hope. This isn't, this isn't a really negative kind of diagnosis that people are being left with, but there are effective treatments available and that they can get help from their medical providers. So thank you so much, Dr. Goldberg. Thanks for coming and spending this time with us and giving us so much information. I know I learned a lot and our listeners have as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed listening to the High on Life podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and review it on Apple Podcasts.